Welcome to Inquire, the Investor Relations Podcast. In today's interview, I'm delighted to be joined by David Shriver, who is Chief Reputation Officer at Ocado Group, the UK-based tech company that provides end-to-end online grocery fulfillment solutions to some of the world's largest grocery retailers. David has been with Ocado for just over six years, having held the role of Director of Communications, which included leadership of the Investor Relations team. David's extensive career is rich and varied. He began his career in the city on the sell side in 1987 as a food retail analyst spending nine years with NatWest Securities. He then moved to Credit Suisse, spending six years as managing director and joint head of the Global Retail Research Group. After that, he went on to join European retailer Carrefour in Paris, where over a period of five and a half years, he was first director of Group Financial Communications and then went on to be strategic advisor to the chief executive. He's also spent time in financial PR as a managing partner at Tolkien Communications. This is a pretty impressive CV, made even more so due to the fact that David has also been involved with the UK's Investor Relations Society, and currently holds a number of other non-executive roles, which we'll come on to talk about today. I'm really excited to speak with you today, David, and thank you so much for joining me. Let's start with Ocado. So your previous role is Director of Communication. So tell me more about what you were responsible for in this role, including your experience leading the investor relations team. Well, first of all, Clara, thank you very much for the invitation to be on the show. It's a real pleasure. For much of the six years I've been at Ocado Group, my role has been as Director of Communications. And I was very keen to join because I'm a a passionate believer in the transformative impact of smart, joined-up communications on corporate reputation. And Ocado has always been a very innovative and forward-looking business. And they saw the opportunity to create the role of Director of Communications, which they hadn't had before, in order to put together a really first-class joined-up communications team, which I had the privilege of leading for a number of years. IR, of course, is at the center of that, because although in the digital world, the nature of the conversation about you as a business is joined up, there are no silos in the digital world. Nonetheless, we all know that if you don't get the capital markets part of your conversation right, then none of the other conversations you have with key stakeholders are in the right place either. So the capital markets conversation is really the starting point. And we've done a lot of work to re-engage with both the buy side and the sell side over the last few years. And hopefully that's paying off. And you won the IR Society Award for Best Practice in 2020. So tell me more about what best practice in investor relations looks like to you. Best practice is about understanding that IR does not sit in a silo. IR should never be kind of in a financial silo outside the broader management of the conversation about you with your stakeholders. Again, it is the starting point. You've got to get IR right. And if you can get the feedback loop between the capital markets conversation and, for example, the business media in the right place, then you see a huge multiplier effect. But the fact is, you know, whereas in the old days, I remember when I joined Carrefour, this was 20 years ago, Carrefour used to do their investor meetings in the basement of a Paris hotel in French, not webcast. One of the first things I did was to suggest that perhaps we should be webcasting this. And the sort of view was, well, you know, then everybody can follow it. And well, that's the idea. 
necessarily that conversation is joined up. And best practice in IR is understanding that, making sure that the IR part of that joined up conversation works really effectively. I'm just going to delve into this a little bit more. We talked previously about how your audience from your results presentations evolved during your tenure at Ocado. Tell me more about the evolution in that audience, the growth in your audience, the stakeholder groups that are attending those results presentations, and how you may have adapted your content and messaging accordingly. Well, one of the great advantages of being a listed company is that you kind of have the microphone five or six times a year around your reporting cycle. And you've really got to use that. That's a huge, huge gift. And I think all too often the results presentation is seen as a purely financial event for analysts, for investors, for the capital markets audience. But the reality is that there are a whole number of stakeholder groups that are absolutely invested in what you're saying about your numbers. So your colleagues, for a start, clients, customers, suppliers. And if you're just thinking about the results presentation as a means of delivering, then you kind of miss an opportunity. We've always taken the view that make it entertaining. You know, post-COVID, obviously, there are far more people watching via a screen than are physically in place for the meeting. And that was probably the case even before COVID, but it's certainly the case now. So how do you kind of entertain them? And you've got to treat the results presentation kind of like as a TV show. And, you know, the era of, you know, sort of men in suits going through PowerPoint presentations at lecterns is over. So how do you engage? not just for the financial audience, but for a broader audience. And that's what we've been trying to do, to think about different ways to get the message across. And of course, what's happened is that the number of people engaging with the results presentation has increased dramatically. So the last four year results back in February, we had over 500 people on the day actually watching live. So maybe 50, 70 people in person, but over 500 watching live. And we've had, you know, three or four X that number watched the presentation in the subsequent uh, days. And that itself is three times what it was, let's say, two to three years ago. So people know that if you want to understand what's going on at Ocado, which is an incredibly innovative, fast-moving business, you know, innovating at pace, you know, creating new technology, when you follow the results, you'll get a very good sense, not just of the financial performance of the business, but the strategy, what we're trying to do, how we're changing things and an entertaining way. So again, it comes back to understanding your audience and understanding that IR needn't, often does, but needn't sit in a financial silo. Your passion comes across very clearly. And I can tell you have a passion for storytelling. So Atacardo, how do you ensure a consistent story is being told to different audiences? Well, I think that the starting point in putting together a narrative that sort of has authority. There's no story waiting to be told. You have to create a story based on the facts of the business that obviously the, the history, the strategy in place and the aspiration to grow the business. And I think the starting point is a respect for words. There's a wonderful quote by the playwright Tom Stoppard, which goes something like this, that words are sacred things. If you put the right words in the right order, you can nudge the world a little. And I love that quote. And I think that's very true. Certainly when I was on agency side, one technique that we use to get everyone sort of buy into the narrative, because you can't really impose it. Stories are organic things. They're the collective organic things. They're not things that you sort of impose on people. 
was to get all the senior people and all the advisors in a room for as long as it took and just work out what is the story that we want to tell. And once everybody's on side and once everyone's had their input into it, and once it's a collective endeavor, the storytelling is a collective endeavor, then you get that consistency because it's not my story that I'm trying to impose on someone else. It's all our story. I mean, I've been obviously very lucky at Ocado because it's just been a fantastic story. It's been a great privilege to tell it. But I think it's a story that we've all relished the opportunity to tell, all of us at Ocado, in our own ways. Can you tell us a bit more about your current role at Ocado Group as its Chief Reputation Officer? What does that involve exactly? And how has your experience in IR, communication and PR helped you develop in this role? Well, the role of Chief Reputation Officer really involves three things. It's building, protecting and measuring corporate reputation. And I suppose the starting point that I've taken is that there's a conversation about all of us as individuals, as organizations, as businesses. And that conversation is your reputation. And frankly, if there's no conversation going on about you, you have no reputation. And it's really a binary choice. You can either choose to understand it. You can't determine the outcome of a conversation because it's not yours to determine. You can inform it. It can be a well-educated, well-informed conversation. And perhaps you can help shape it as well. But the starting point is understanding it. How is that conversation taking place? What platforms? Where is it taking place on social media? Is it taking place on the trading floors of the big investment banks in London and New York? You need to understand who is having that conversation and you need to understand what that conversation is about. So there aren't really many sources that you can go to to give you a reliable view and certainly to quantify it because I'm very much of the view and I'm sure you know most of your listeners would agree that you know what doesn't get measured doesn't change, doesn't happen. Measuring the conversation over a period of time, how does it evolve? Understanding what very specific things, particularly at board level, the reputation dashboard that I've created for Ricardo Group is a board tool to help the board understand the conversation about us better. Ultimately, it's about making better decisions and growing faster, is build on the role that I've been in as director of communications to think more deeply about reputation and specifically what the business needs to do to protect reputation and build it in the interests of all our stakeholders. Perhaps playing to the accountability point, can you talk a little bit about Ocado's approach to ESG and sustainability and how this ties into the broader Ocado business model? ESG is incredibly important as a means to renew your license to operate. Every business over a certain cycle needs to renew its license to operate. That mandate is given by society more generally. It's given by the government and regulatory bodies that sort of influence the extent to which you can grow your business. And so, you know, part of it's just doing the right thing, although clearly we're talking about some very complex and nuanced issues generally. But being able to walk the walk as, as well as talk the talk is critical, I think, in renewing it, your license to operate. And it's the reason why taking ESG, but you know, not just E, but the S and the G, taking all of those acronyms seriously is so important to every business. Cardo is a tech company. So your innovation includes robotics, AI, machine learning, simulation forecasting, edge intelligence from reading what I've read online. I'm interested in your thoughts on technological developments in IR, including potential uses of AI. I think IR is a very balanced profession in the sense that a lot of success in IR is about understanding how to use data, but there's also a lot of intuition. I would never underplay the value of intuition, but I favor data because I think then you can make decisions based on fact rather than 
what you think is true. And in as much as AI can help manage that data, help you analyze data, that's something to be valued and embraced. On the other hand, I think we've got to be very careful that AI in being able to replicate voice and visual images can and probably will over time undermine the authority of traditional platforms. The fact, Clara, that you know you can take either your or my image and voice from the internet and create ours of ourselves. So that there's a Clara or a David, you know, on social media saying something that we've never said is actually very scary. And I think there is a big issue in the longer term about credibility, about authority. You know, when a company talks, is it really the company? It has somebody hijacked the image of the chief executive to put a message out there which is not helpful, which is not the company's narrative. I think these are all things that we have to face. So in as much as we will be able to process data, large amounts of data to make better decisions than they are, absolutely a good thing. But let's not deceive ourselves. You know, AI carries very big risks as well, and we need to be sensitive to them. One of the wonderful things about being in IR and comms and sort of reputation, being in, in the industry that we're in, is that technology is changing things to such an extent, at such a pace, that even being half a step ahead of the competition allows you to win, allows you to uh, reset the bar for excellence in comms. And you kind of got to go back to, what was it, 1450? That's when Gutenberg invented the printing press and completely transformed the way in which information was disseminated. And that sort of set off a, a multi-century period of disintermediation of traditional opinion forms. And, you know, it's been, what, 500, 600 years since technology has had a comparable effect in the way that information is disseminated. And you know what? We're working in that industry today. And we haven't got to the, the end of the process. We're right in the middle of it. So we were talking about AI earlier. Using whatever tools, whatever technological tools you have at hand to engage better, to understand the conversation better, incredibly important. And you know, the result of doing that is the business will thrive, the business will make better decisions, the business will make more money, you will engage with your stakeholders better, and people will want to work with you, they want to align with you, they want to be on the journey with you. And fundamentally, that is what business success is all about. That's a really interesting answer. And interesting because I, I ask everyone that question currently, because I'm interested in people's mm -hmm. thoughts on the subject. It's obviously very topical, both for fund managers and for IR. And, and most people focus on the opportunity. And I can see why as a reputation officer, you presented both sides of the opportunity and the, the risks attached to AI. Can I just come back to what you said about use of data? Any examples you can think of? Because we're quite often sort of challenged about measuring IR and, and what data points you can use to improve your delivery of IR and your IR strategy. Just anything you can think of in terms of examples around data points you've used in the past in investor relations would be really interesting. Well, fundamentally, IR is about refreshing the shareholder register. Markets are about supply and demand. And the share price isn't going to go up unless you attract more shareholders to the register. And so understanding where those potential shareholders might be, where the, you know, the marginal buyer of the stock might reside is absolutely of fundamental importance. And again, I wouldn't underestimate the impact of intuition, the spontaneous conversation in the corridor that, you know, we all kind of missed during the COVID period because we were just doing meetings exclusively via Zoom. Those 
conversations do give you a picture of where the interest is that you can follow up. But if you're not really using data to analyze, to understand how you can create a picture of where demand is, you're probably going to be wasting a lot of time. And I think for most IR professionals, I don't think anyone listening to our conversation would disagree that time is the most precious thing. There is just so much to do. I mean, you could, in theory, be working 24 hours a day. I mean, obviously you can't. AI can, but let's not go to sort of, you know, AI replacing IR completely. So how do you use your time in a smart way? That's what data, particularly in terms of shareholder identification, identifying potential targets to attract to the register, that's where the opportunity really lies. Over your 36 years in the city, I'm sure you've had plenty of experience in managing crisis situations. Can you share some of your learnings on how to manage a crisis effectively from both an IR and a broader communication perspective? Over a period of time when you've been through you know, multiple crashes, you, know, you understand just some fundamentals, which I think are really important for all IR professionals. One of which is, is just calmness. Secondly, it's understanding that in periods of volatility, what you've been doing before, you know, the market needs more of. So transparency, engagement, never put your head in the sand. That's just almost always the worst thing to do. You kind of want to in periods of crisis because it's a human reaction, but actually you should do the opposite. You stand up. People want to hear from you. They want to understand you know, what market volatility might mean for you. Any other snippets of advice based on experience, perhaps managing a company-specific crisis, any learnings from those situations which you've taken forwards in your career? You know, I would say that the most important thing, if you're head of IR or head of communications or corporate affairs or whatever your role, is calmness. Because in a crisis, you need to be calm. Because if you're not calm, nobody else will be. You're probably going to be the person who will be most on the phones externally. You may well be the person who is writing the RNSs. You have to work out what the situation is, what you need to say, how to say it. You need to give your colleagues confidence that you know what you're doing and that even though you don't have necessarily all the information at any given time, that the story that you're going to put out is you know, what is required, it is truthful, and will properly address the concerns that stakeholders, whether they're investors or the business media, whoever they might happen to be, that those stakeholders have. It's very easy to say, be calm. I don't know if you remember the great British sitcom Dad's Army with Corporal Jones, you know, don't panic, Captain Mannering. But it's very easy to talk about being calm. It's actually a skill that you develop, I think, just bit by bit. I think experience gives you the, the skill. No one is born calm in a crisis situation. You learn it. But it's a discipline that is so vital, so vital in IR and comms more generally. I think there's one of the reasons I love investor relations so much is that opportunity to be always learning, not just when you move to a new company and you're working in a new role, understanding a new business, but because of the evolution, not just in IR, but the evolution in capital markets is constant, fast paced, evolving. And therefore, a good IR professional is not just a good communicator of one equity story, but actually 
part of shaping that capital markets landscape, that capital markets ecosystem. And by constantly evolving and improving the way we're interacting, by adopting new ideas, by trialing things which may work, which may not work, we can really shape the capital markets ecosystem and actually play quite an important role within the broader capital markets landscape. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And in IR, you have a license to sort of push the boundaries. But I think actually you have a mandate as well. IR as a profession must embrace the opportunities available to it. And again, it comes back to the, you know, what we were discussing at the beginning of the conversation. I think the starting point is understanding and appreciating that IR doesn't sit in a financial silo. It's, it shouldn't sit in a financial silo. And it is a critical part of a joined up conversation, which if you understand that conversation, you can really help transform the reputation of the business. So turning now to your non-executive positions, you've held a number of non-executive and trustee positions over the years, including a supervisory board member of a German Estax listed company, as a trustee of Polka Theatre for Children in Wimbledon, and as a chair of digital media agency Vox Media. How firstly do you identify suitable roles? I know it's not easy to secure particularly your first non-executive position. And then talk to me, we'll bring the conversation on a little bit about the benefits, particularly for communications professionals making that transition into non-executive positions. I've taken non-exec positions on boards of two different types of organizations. One as part of my sort of charitable portfolio on the board of Polka Theatre for Children, UK's largest theatre for children, which does amazing work, particularly for early years. So anyone wants to know more about the work that Polka does, go online. It's so inspirational. I'm on the board of Wimbledon Bookfest, which is one of UK's big book festivals, but more importantly, is an educational charity, which sponsors and encourages reading for school age kids across southwest london and again just incredibly inspirational work i've also had board you know a listed company zoo plus and whatever board you're on whether again it's a listed company or it's an organization or a, or a charity or whatever the organization as a comms professional what you're bringing is a very specific domain expertise which is about understanding that, that conversation. And as I say, I think understanding that conversation, understanding how informing a conversation better can lead to greater market value, because clearly that's absolutely essential, but also stronger reputation. That's domain expertise that you can bring that probably is going to be unique on the board. And I think increasingly progressive forward-looking companies are understanding how important that is. In terms of the benefits that you bring back, I think there's no question that board experience, whether, as I say, it's a trustee of charity or as a listed supervisory member of a listed business, you bring so much back to your day job in terms of understanding how governance works, how business works that helps you understand the business that you're working for, how that business ticks. Yeah, I think it is uh, hugely valuable in broadening and deepening uh, the skills that you can apply to everything you do. And I would heartily recommend it as a route to becoming uh, a fuller and more effective professional. I think the point about the benefit to your current role is really pertinent. I know certainly myself included, a lot of people have put off by the, the time commitments required for non-executive positions. But actually, if you think about it more broadly in terms of developing a professional skill set and the relevance to your existing role as well, then there's obviously clear value in those relationships. Very much so. And I think you need to find the time. I think just on a basis of 
charitable work you do, you need to find time to give back. And I think, you know, if your day is well structured and you work out the priorities that you want to achieve on a day by day, week by week basis, you will find the time for sure. And do you have an example of a particularly amusing or funny situation? I don't have too many sort of funny anecdotes relating to Cardo specifically, but I always find a degree of humor from the situations which occur with remarkable frequency where companies forget that effectively, you know, we are always being recorded and we're always effectively live. And I think of you know two fairly recent examples of webcasts where company involved, I won't say who, forgot to turn the microphone off. On one occasion, a very, very brief and probably unhelpful call, which just ended with the phone, you know, not going down, the operator not terminating the call. And all you just then hear is sort of footsteps, boom, 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 and then the door opening, a very squeaky door, and then boom, 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 and then clunk with the door, which was just a fantastic way to end a, a meeting. You definitely know that the Q&A is over at that point. And then, of course, you know, the number of times if you stay on long enough, people haven't hung up and then they're talking about, oh, I think that went quite well. Oh, that was a really stupid question from, you know, blah, blah, blah. And you're just thinking there's a great line from the writer Gore Vidal that an untelevised life is not worth living. I think that's uh, quite uh, apposite. But, you know, you just got to assume that there's always a camera on you. There's always a microphone. And just to finish, how do you manage all your many multiple commitments? So how particularly not just in your day job, non-executive roles, but actually your, your broader interests and passions outside of work? Well, first of all, get a good night's sleep. I think that the sort of the, your ability to take advantage of all the opportunities a day starts with that. But, you know, there is more time in the day than one might imagine. And, uh, you know, you need off time and, and on time. In my off time, I read a lot of books. I probably read somewhere between 100 and 150 mainly novels, mainly new fiction, which is great. It's my zen. It sort of, you know, it just takes me out of myself and helps the brain function and it keeps you going so that typically, you know, we make better decisions in the morning because, you know, we're fresh. Every decision takes a certain amount of energy and you get tired. But for me, at least reading, and I absolutely love reading, just stimulates the mind and and I can keep going longer. So uh, you can find more time in your day than than you can possibly imagine and there are just so many great opportunities to take that you just don't want to miss out on anything great points on sleep you often sacrifice sleep but achieve less i feel from experience yeah. what's your best book of 2023 then well i think i've always loved new voices and if i was going to make a recommendation for the listeners to uh, follow up it would be here's three Brilliant new voices. Nick Malongo, who uh, one of the great sort of South African writers out of Soweto. Joe Thomas, who I discovered really this year, who's absolutely brilliant. And uh, the American writer, S.A. Cosby, who sort of writes Southern Gothic. Three great new voices. Go and explore. Do you have any questions for me? Well, I, I suppose, Clara, coming back to the point that we were discussing about IR having, you know, a fantastic number of really, really intelligent progressive forward-looking senior IR officers when, when you're looking forward so the next sort of kind of five years maybe 10 years is too long but let's say the next five years with all that thinking and, and that creativity going on and you're right in the middle of it and you're sort of the catalyst for so much of this where do you think we'll be as a profession over a five-year period I think, and coming back to my point about being part of an industry that's evolving and changing it's 
there's a lot of change going on. Some of it's cyclical. There's certainly cyclical challenges in markets right now, but there's also huge structural changes in the makeup of capital markets. And without going into too much detail, we've got declining equity ownership in the UK. Portfolios have gone from around 50% equities to below 5%. We've got fund outflows leading to forced selling and a huge political instability. Exceptions of the UK are very weak right now. And all of that means it's increasingly hard to attract new investors. It's the competition for capital is much more challenging, certainly than when I begun my investor career sort of 11, 12 years ago now. But what that means, what challenge always means is there's opportunity and there is a need for the capital markets. There is a need for equities investment. And therefore, the companies who are standing out from the crowd, the companies who are communicating well, the IR professionals who are at the forefront of different ways to communicate and how to attract interest from investors and and keeping pace with what investors are looking for in companies and adapting their communication styles around that are more valuable than ever. And therefore, the strategic importance of IR increased post-MIFID too, as you could rely less on the sell side to market your equity story, particularly now when we're going through this sort of period of structural change and instability in equity markets. Good IR, the fundamentals of good IR, good communication, clear clarity, consistency of message, managing risk and reputation, as you say, I think are more important than ever. And in terms of the IR professionals who are really going to stand out from the crowd is that we do have a unique vantage point, both over the company, the perceptions of the company, uh, but also within capital markets. We're having those conversations with investors, with the sales side. We are part of that evolution in how capital markets are functioning. And I think it's really important that both we're keeping ourselves appraised of what's going on, what's changing, how the regulator is responding. There's a number of reviews going on, including the listing rule reforms currently. The government's also involved in in trying to encourage greater equities ownership in the UK. And I think both particularly young IR professionals need to understand all of these debates. And there's multiple sources of information. We've got this podcast, we've got webcasts, uh, PR firms run events, you know, there's plenty of opportunities to, to be part of that conversation, but also to give back. And we've got agencies such as the IR Society and the Quota Companies Alliance who are there lobbying. They want our input, they want our feedback because we have that first-hand experience of what's going on and what we're seeing changing and evolving in capital markets. So I, I encourage everyone to input into those questionnaires, to share your views, your experience. It's relevant. And therefore, we're positioning ourselves at the forefront of change as part of the debate. And, and we'll keep our profession going and, and evolving. And, and also while reinforcing what best practice looks like when it comes to communication. Yeah. So I think it's a very exciting time. It's a challenging time to be an investor relations professional, but I think it's a really exciting time to be in, in our profession. Uh, and long may that continue. I agree. There's never been a better time. And thank you for joining Inquire, the Investor Relations Podcast. Please look out for our next episode in conversation with senior investor relations professionals in the UK.